Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 26, The Buddhist Wheel of Life, part 1. This is part one of a double tape by Eugene Halliday on the symbology of the Buddhist wheel of life. The first sentence of this tape was lost, but this is its content. There is only one being, and all the functions of this being produce apparently a plurality of beings. But these beings are fundamentally one being, who is the host, and the plurality are the guests within the house. Eugene continues. The Holy Ghost is the same infinite spirit, internal to which its own modalities, its own different modes of behaving and functioning produce an apparent plurality. Now the same thing appears in this Buddhist wheel, called the Wheel of Life, and the analysis of it can be done in a variety of ways. The usual way is to describe it as a wheel illustrating six totally different realms within the totality of manifest universal formal function. But there is another key to it. You're all probably thoroughly familiar with the Greeks' definition of the gods and their behavior. That in Greek philosophy, the gods were so preoccupied in their heaven with their own delights that they ignored the rest of reality. Now it's precisely the same definition that in this Buddhist wheel is given of the gods, the devas of the Buddhist and Hindu system. It's in the top segment of the circle here we have the gods. Now it is customary in literature to speak of these beings under the name gods, divine beings and so on and to allow a reader to believe that there are beings that are gods and are divine that are utterly different from human beings. But if you remember in the Samkhya philosophy which we did it was stated very clearly that there are no gods in the universe other than human beings who have attained power and knowledge. So that when gods are referred to in the Buddhist system or in the Hindu system, what is meant by the term is those human beings who have attained a level of knowledge and power such that they can get what they want. Now, if we define the gods in this way, we can say where the gods live is heaven which really means the equilibration of power and yet they're inside this wheel uh, in occidental religion Christianity specifically there's a general belief that heaven is forever without bothering to define forever or heaven is eternal without defining eternal but in the Buddhist system and in the Hindu system they say quite simply that this is not so. 
They say that the gods are beings who have attained by their efforts knowledge and power and they have attained this by their efforts in time and whatever is gained in time can only apply to time and for a time and therefore the beings who are called gods, those attained human beings although they have gotten to this state of power and knowledge by their own efforts if they forget this basic principle that what is gained in time and from time cannot go beyond time then they must know that no matter how meritorious they have been in order to gain this knowledge and power there is a natural term in time for their heaven which they have out of their meritorious deeds constructed therefore in this Buddhist system it is said that the gods have a peculiar fault that is they are so busy enjoying the merits of their deeds of knowledge and power that they are ignoring the affinity of the heaven they have created they are ignoring the fact that it is a temporally derived and temporally enduring structure which must eventually come to an end so the gods have this peculiar quality like we find in the Greek mythology of ignoring the rest of the universal manifestation they don't want to know that there are other beings that are beings called titans humans, animals hungry spirits beings in hell they don't want to know about it and because they don't want to know about it they are called beings unenlightened they have pushed away the time of reckoning the time when their good deeds and merits will have been paid for in time and therefore must cease now if we remember that Aesop and many other fabulists when they wanted to criticize the human race and the human government to keep their heads on their shoulders they used to disguise their criticisms in fables stories about animals a story about a fox that lost its tail and then recommended that foxes look more handsome without tails and suggested that all foxes should have them cut off this was really a statement a very cunning man having lost a certain power persuaded a lot of other people or tried to to likewise sacrifice their power to even things up remember Christ said about Herod that fox Aesop is saying the same thing certain men of great cunning attain positions of power and in the process they find that they have lost something euphemistically called the tail and they then tried to dissuade everybody else from tail wearing by this method of disguising criticism in fables the critics, the prophets and others managed to live a little longer than they would have done and so in the same way the great religions have a method of disguising a typology a system in which human beings are characterized according to certain stresses in six ways and these ways are given different names and a statement is made that they are really different beings and then the person who hears this is allowed to misunderstand it by thinking that beings are in some mysterious way separate from other beings as that gods are separate from humans gods are separate from titans 
Humans are separate from animals. Animals are separate from beings in hell. And those beings are separate from hungry, craving spirits that wander about. Now by splitting it in this way, the great religious leaders were enabled to do double talk. They could have a perfectly coherent typology which enabled them to deal <coughs> with other human beings at certain levels, certain functional levels, without betraying their governing concept. And in this six-segmented wheel, this typology is contained. So when we talk about heaven and the realm of the gods, and we say the gods are enjoying themselves in their heaven, and they are ignoring the rest of universal manifestation, enjoying the fruits of their own efforts of gaining knowledge and power, we are really talking about certain human beings who, by their own knowledge and efforts, have gained power and authority and positions of rulership. And if we want to look for an illustration of these people historically, we can today in a socialist Britain say that we can talk about overthrown aristocracies. We can say that it was thoroughly understood by the people who devised this terminology that the rulers of the world were quite pleased to refer to themselves as gods. We know this happened in Europe. We know that emperors allowed themselves to wear a golden crown with rays coming out to show that they were sons of the sun and allowed themselves to be deified, allowed the people to believe that they were really gods. If you read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you will find some degree of surprise in certain people that a god can bleed and a god can have some kind of uh, attack that unmans him and a god can die with a sufficient number of knives in him. But if we remember that the people themselves were unaware of the true meaning of the terminology and that the persons who devised the terminology had another meaning for their terms, then we can understand how easy it was to dupe people and to rule them by saying things with two meanings. One meaning to the people who devised the terms and another meaning for the people who merely passively receive these terms. So the gods then here in this system signify only human beings who have attained knowledge and power and they've had it so long that they cannot and do not want to imagine that that time will come when all this merit that they have accrued, all this knowledge and power, will be useless. We did find, during the time we abandoned India, certain factions in this country that were rather godlike, who thought we ought to retain India, we ought to keep hold of the British Empire. There were some more forward-looking people who knew that we couldn't hang on forever and therefore said, give it away quickly before it's taken away and we will retain our prestige. There was a great fight about this in this country at the time. Those of you over 21 will probably remember it. During the French Revolution, we saw that the French gods, remember that one of the French kings was quite pleased to call himself the Sun King and to try to reanimate this concept that kings are gods. These aristocratic rulers were actually overthrown. Like the gods in this Buddhist wheel of life, they did not believe that they could be overthrown. 
They didn't understand that certain of their own members, a little lower down the hierarchy of gods, had sensed that they were going to be invaded by other forces. In the same illustration we have Russia. <coughs> when the revolution in Russia startled many of the aristocracy, the gods, and their term of enjoyment of their knowledge and power came to an end. So we can say the characteristic here of the gods is that they ignore the rest of the universe and they have duped themselves into believing that their heaven state of enjoyment will never cease. Now Buddhist psychology is essentially dialectical and therefore immediately opposite to the heaven there are the hells, the variety of hells, but they're all under the general heading hells. And the characteristic of these people in the hells is that like the gods, they dupe themselves, but in this case, instead of duping themselves into believing that joys and pleasures from merit are eternal, the beings in the hells actually dupe themselves into believing that sins committed in time merit eternal punishment. So the beings in the hells are quite illogical. They believe you can do a sin in five minutes and pay for it for eternity. It is not logical. I doubt if anybody thinking very carefully would say that a sin committed in five minutes should be paid for in five years. In the case of uh, long terms, like 500,000 million zeros after a figure could possibly be the correct amount of time to spend paying for a sin of five minutes. It's wrong. There must be an equation. If it takes you five minutes to commit a sin, you should be able to recover in five minutes, in all logic. But the beings in the hells have duped themselves into thinking that they can't do this. Now we find in Christianity that Christ, after duly being crucified, goes down into hell and he goes down with the express intention of saying to the beings down there you don't need to stay down here and the peculiar thing is in the Buddhist system there is a very refined spirit and he goes in the hells and he has two titles one of which is the Lord of Death and the other one of which signifies that he is a saviour <coughs> all he does is hold up a mirror to the beings in hell with a funny word written on the mirror which you might write H-R-I-H -H, which you might pronounce Hri which means you did it yourself your power differentiated you this created your concept of individual responsibility your power must release you but until they are shown this mirror that there is no criticism that is valid other than self-criticism the beings in the hells cannot come out they are duped into thinking quite illogically that they can pay an eternal price for a temporal error so we observe the canning of this Buddhist definition the polarity in it there are two kinds of way of imagining that something is going to last eternally. 
One is to imagine your joys gained in time from your merits of good deeds are going to be eternal. The other is to imagine that your sins done in time are worthy of eternal punishments. This kind of opposition is not brought out in literature on the subject because it is very, very convenient for controlling people to give them this sense that it is possible to commit a five-minute sin and spend 500,000 million years paying for it because it tends to cause less performance of sin and it weakens the person who believes in it so that he can do as he is told more easily than he would otherwise do. Now, next to the gods on this side are the sun beings which are called titans. We don't need to give them their names in various other languages because they all adapt to the same thing. Just as the gods are characterized by ignoring the temporality of their joys, so the titans are characterized by envy of the gods. The titans are all the big men. I won't mention any names of public figures. They'll all spring automatically to your mind. All the men who strive to get power and position and authority and knowledge and reputation because they know that there are some beings that have these things. Imagine a man, it might be a gentleman, actually in Monte Carlo, gambling away the chief rents from certain territories in England. You see them in the Tatler, in the Sphere, and it will say Lord so-and-so at the tables. And if you find the source of his income, uh, it is actually chief rents and such like things from territories of one screen and are now full of chimneys and things. Now, imagine the gods are there and some ambitious fellows who are not yet gods, but they are very strong. And their main characteristic is envy of those gods. They want power. They want joy forever. <coughs> they want large chief rents. They want lots of land that people have to pay for in perpetuity. And they don't want to work it. They just want to collect. So the titans are all those men who are essentially power-pursuing because they know, they see, that there are beings in the world with power and with know-how who have actually, historically, in their ancestors, gained these positions of power. Positions in which those men don't need to work anymore. They can have a townhouse and a country house and another townhouse because they don't like the colour of the first one and several country houses in different countries. And they don't have to work anymore because their ancestors worked with double-bladed swords, battle axes, clubs and such like implements of refined thinking. <laughs> now, today it is very difficult to go out with a club and proceed to club the gods into insensibility without upsetting the people. Because funnily enough, the people revere gods because secretly there is inside everybody a desire to be such a god. And so they're rather nervous that if ever they did become gods, as a fellow once said to me during the war, uh, American soldier, who said to me that he claimed that the USA was superior to Britain 
because he could, in principle, be the president, and I could not, in principle, be the king. Well, we all know that there's no more likelihood of that particular GI becoming a president. You'd have to be born in another family to get the necessary springboard for the jump. But he didn't want to know this. He really liked to think that he could become the president. <coughs> and if we remem remember that this wheel is simply the six-part whole being of the universe and of an individual man, then we know there's an impulse in each individual that could appreciate being a god in this sense. We also know that because he is not a god in this sense, unless of course he is, then he could have his titan impulse, his envy of power, his envy of knowledge, of brilliance. So the titans are continuously striving for power. They have this peculiar quality that they can make efforts when we compare them with some other aspects of the wheel, we'll see what a marvellous virtue this envy and power-seeking is. Because opposite to the titans, we have animals. And if we remember that, again, those look like animals, animals. <coughs> the opposition between the gods and the beings in hell was simply they were both self-duped into believing that their condition was eternal. Now, in the case of the Titans, they pursue power by their individual efforts, and the animals do not. So the animals mean those beings, those impulses inside us, which only react to pleasure and pain. They take present pleasures and avoid present pains, if they can manage it. So, Again, there's this peculiar opposition. There is a driving force in the titans and in the animals, but it differs in this sense. In the titans, it is a drive towards power, and in the animals, a drive towards the satisfaction of pleasures and the avoidance of pains. And yet there's a remarkable similarity, because the behavior of a jolly good titan is very, very much like an animal, except that the titan doesn't need a present pleasant stimulus, and he doesn't need a present painful stimulus to make him move away, because the titan has a certain amount of reflexive power that allows him to anticipate the avoidance of a pain that has not yet arrived, that is, he might crush a person who has not yet harmed him, but might if he manages to grow any bigger in five years' time. And he might refuse the present pleasure if it interfered with his gaining of power and his possibility of joining the gods. Whereas the animals, those beings who respond only to pleasures and pains, have no such capacity as the titans have of foregoing immediate pleasure or facing immediate pain so that again is this polarization of the titans and the animals. In every human being there is a titan, an envious impulse that would seize power, and is prepared to forego a present pleasure, and even to endure a present pain, if it will lead to the power that puts him with the gods. So we might find one of our most prominent politicians, 
trying to stay sober during a TV interview <coughs> in order to give an impression of rationality and consideration for the electorate. Actually, he's not the very best quality type in that one because he doesn't manage it. Now, the humans... I'm going to write men in here. It's really wrong to call them humans. I'm going to write men in there. And they have a peculiar quality too. Men have the quality called egoic pride. Now this is something that titans don't suffer from at all. A titan has no pride. He only has the drive towards power so that he can be like the gods. So he has not got an opinion of himself that would make him refuse something on self-opinion. He couldn't say to himself, I'm the kind of person that cannot be bribed. A titan can be bribed. And he couldn't say, my pride will not let me uh, bribe that inferior being, because he can and does bribe that inferior being to get a step nearer the gods and their heaven. The peculiar thing about man in his egoic pride, this peculiar pride consists in one thing, <coughs> self-image of value. That somehow, mysteriously, simply to be a man is already sufficient merit. In America, of course, in the last few years, they've done a terrific analysis of what they call the image. <coughs> and everybody has to have an image. And the image must be continuously polished up and redefined and kept up to date. And it does not matter who or what the person is, as long as the image is all right. Now, this is an extreme manifestation of the essential quality of the man level. A great pride. This pride in him is very funny, very strange, because his pride will not let him take a present pleasure like an animal. It can even make him suffer a pain in public with a stiff upper lip. For no other purpose, in demonstrating stiff upper lipness. <laughs> it can let you walk off the cricket field, bowl for a duck, head held high. It can dissolve an empire with a gracious smile. Quite easily. The essential quality of man is that he can do the most strange and profitable things and miss the most profitable things and still keep his image that somehow he's a thoroughly decent type. He's not an animal. He doesn't have sensuous lust. He's not deterred by threats of pain. And he's not a titan, an envious, greedy, power-seeking being. And he's not a forgetful God who doesn't know the rest of the world exists. He's a, a, a man of uh, pride in being human. Actually, he's not human at all. He's just proud. <laughs> <laughs> now, opposite to the men, there are some funny beings. Uh, I'll write in here there their technical name in Sanskrit, they are pretas. I've written that in there because it's a short word. If I wrote the English equivalent, it would be two words and it would be longer and I hadn't that much space. These beings are characterized by wanting something they haven't got the power to get and which, if they got, they couldn't digest it. They're humorously called hungry spirits. And they are said to be the spirits that the necromancers call up and we'll see a simple logic about this. Just as men can do without things out of their egoic pride, you know, if a man hasn't had his dinner and he goes to a friend's house and dinner is just starting, 
he can say, thank you very much, I have eaten. And sit there and say, won't you have something? No, 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 no. <laughs> Mother told me always to leave half my dinner on the plate so people don't know I'm hungry. <laughs> now, these preta means, these hungry spirits, they have no pride whatever. They go about with their mouths, slightly open. They look. If they come in your house and it's meal time, you're being cleared up. They go. <laughs> they look at a bit of cheese on the table. They move towards it. They have no pride. And if you say, would you like a bit of cheese? They say, thank you very much. Chairs <laughs> up to the table. Lips on. And then they get indigestion. Here you think about this. They're represented in Buddhist pictures in a very funny way. They're very long, thin beings, rather like a banjo, with a very round tummy that's swollen out. <coughs> the rest of them is long and thin. Now, there is such a thing inside human beings, too. <coughs> they have these cravings for things they can't digest. I know uh, a young fellow who has at the present moment a craving to be able to follow the score in public at a concert <laughs> given by Barbara Rolly. <laughs> it's a funny thing to us. <laughs> but he actually wants it. <laughs> now there are many other things that these Plato beings want. You can define them all by examining yourself very carefully. If you go home and ask yourself, what do I really want that I can't digest? and can't conceive myself as digesting, then you can say, all those grouped together and considered to be in a realm of their own are praetamine. Now they're said to be the things that the necromancers work with, and they're the fellows that manipulate the dead. <coughs> the spirits of the dead. That means to say is that a very astute man can recognize the hunger in people for things they can't digest, <coughs> and then make a little model in PVC, of it and sell it to them. <laughs> there is actually on the market uh, in America a very small PVC travelling companion, small enough to be carried in the vest pocket and self-inflating to human size so that you won't feel lonely on a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> These have been specially manufactured for Prater. <laughs> now, when we see these six realms, remember a realm means a zone that is ruled by something, and that any individual human being has got these six types of tendency inside himself. They're not just simply six separated realms in the universe, as if the heaven with gods were somewhere far away, and another place where titans were, battling madly for power, and another place where men are being proud and doing without things they want, another place where animals are indulging themselves in ways that men are too ashamed to do, another place where hungry spirits go about looking like banjos, and another place where people sit there biting their fingernails forever <coughs> on account of a five-minute sin. There are no such separated realms in the universe. We know in scientific terms today that matter is a modality of power, that power is a field, a unifield, a continuum, and that this field, being a continuum, is 
throughout itself identical in essence. It can modelize itself in these six ways anywhere whatever. And anywhere that a wave is produced in an ocean modifies all the ocean. And therefore, in the same way, any behavior of a god affects men. We know it has done, because in fact the gods have got themselves written about by men. <coughs> so in spite of their ignoring men, men have not ignored them. We know that men have actually written about titans, fighting gods, like Prometheus. We know that men have written about hells. We know that men have actually studied certain kinds of unsatisfied cravings. And we know that men have studied animals. The peculiar thing about men is that they evaluate things and they make this their mark that we are evaluating beings, we are very proud of our power of evaluation and therefore in man we have a record of this. We also know that the animals are impinged upon by men and interfered with so that animals are not ignorant of the existence of men. We know the beings in hell are worrying like mad about uh, the other beings that are not in hell and wishing they were with them. We know that the hungry spirits are actually hungering for something that they haven't got, therefore they know there is something other than themselves. And we know the titans in pursuing power and moving away from the powerless also know there is something other than themselves. So we can say that these six presuppose each other. There is a peculiar logic about the circle. Thinking things done in time can last forever is the gods. Thinking things done in time can last forever is the belief of hellish beings. The only difference, one thinks the good is lasting, the other thinks the bad is lasting. The titans have their pursuit of power and an immediacy of response towards it. The animals have an immediate response, but only towards a pleasant stimulus and away from an unpleasant one. The men have pride and the hungry beings have no pride. And all these are functions of any being whatever in the universe. And they're all classed as unenlightened beings, from which we can see that there must be, logically, an enlightened being who drew the circle in the first place. Some being has made an analysis of these six beings, and it must have been a being who had these six beings as six realms of himself. Because ultimately all knowledge is self-knowledge. When this analysis was looked at very carefully, just as we say in inductive reasoning, we write our particulars, and then we move in from the periphery towards the centre, we want to find out what it is common to all these beings who are unenlightened that generated them as they are. And we find in the centre of this wheel three figures one is a, a cock, another is a snake, and another is a hog. <coughs> now, they are shown biting each other's tails, so we have a trinity here, generating a wheel of six spokes, six zones. The cock signifies desire, the snake signifies aversion, and the hog signifies the egoic consciousness. So we can say that all these six types of function or six types of being 
are generated out of three basic impulses desire aversion egoism <coughs> now if you like to think about this logically these three presuppose each other <coughs> this is a theory called dependent origination you cannot without desire constitute yourself as an egoic being you cannot without aversion reject that which is beyond the egoic being you cannot be an egoic being without desiring those things that subserve your end and feeling aversion towards the things that would destroy you <coughs> so these three central principles desire, aversion, egoism presuppose each other now in European theories of causality the general usage of the term presupposes that you set one thing up at the beginning and call it the cause and then put the other things down and say they are effects but in this expression dependent origination there is not causality in the European sense there is a statement that they presuppose each other to be so that they are coexistent that egoism and desire and aversion coexist and the appearance of one is the appearance of the three you cannot have desire without egoic aversion to that which would impede your desire you cannot have aversion without egoic desire for that that your aversion is protecting you from you cannot have egoism without finiting yourself fastening on something and when you fasten onto something you draw in a circle the things inside the circle you desire the things outside the circle are threatening your egoic being so when we think about dependent origination we are not to think about it in the European causality sense as if a cock caused a hog and the hog <coughs> caused the snake these three are really three modal functions of a fourth power which either manifests in this threefold manner or it doesn't manifest at all so the wheel of the gods, the titans, men, animals hungry fellows and beings in hell is dependently originated on desire, aversion, egoism therefore the cure of desire, aversion and egoism is the same thing as escape from the wheel now the escaping from this wheel is the whole meaning of all the religions of the world this wheel in its dependent origination has all its zones presupposing each other to get out of it we have to conquer egoism, desire and aversion simultaneously if you conquer one of those you conquer the other two if you conquer egoism that is the idea that you are a finite being then automatically and logically in defining yourself as no longer finite there is nothing outside you that you could desire or that could give rise to aversion because in denying your affinity you logically assert your infinity and everything is now included in the consciousness that liberates itself from the definition of egoism likewise if there is something you dislike and you conquer your dislike you have conquered your egoic finite response 
and if it is something that you desire to possess and you conquer this desire to possess it you have also conquered your egoic response and you are no longer feeling the aversion for that which will stop you getting that which you want so in a, a nice logical way this wheel in any one of its parts presupposes all the other parts now it is spread out and twelve other little symbols are placed round the wheel and a little series of symbols are used to explain it we could give it that uh, a blind woman gave birth to a potter and the potter modelled in clay a monkey and it was so lifelike that he had a dream in which two men were in a houseboat the monkey jumped in the houseboat and went in the house park and he had six windows and he looked out to the six windows and while he was looking out he saw a beautiful maiden and he wanted this and he called her probably she was a monkey maiden and she came and he felt pleasure and she gave him a bowl of some lovely delightful mixture she laid there and he promptly developed a terrible thirst for this and from this thirst he wanted to possess the lady who had given him the bowl <coughs> and this clinging caused a relation with the lady and this relation caused a birth and this birth logically presupposed a death because once he had finited himself in this way there was no way back other than by dying that is by rubbing out the whole fantasy now if we ask what this blind woman is we can say that the substantial aspect remember we use H for gentlemen and M for ladies when we say a blind woman we mean that the substantial aspect of universal power vibrating produces forms so that this not knowingness is remember to know means to lock up and sharpen to formulate this not knowingness with its vibrating of this universal power produced from itself a potter a formulator and this formulator produced from itself consciousness of specific form this consciousness of specific form is a monkey this monkey had the dream this consciousness of specific form then saw two men in a boat and these two men symbolized Psychisoma Namarupa the being that has two sides a physical side and the psychological side the house with the six windows is your body, your vehicle with five senses and the common sense that links them, making six looking out of these five senses messages come and some of these messages are very pleasant this causes us to go out we have a taste and we want more and we cling to it we relate to it and out of this relation we get born because we are born we must die 
Now this whole cycle presupposes in any one of its parts all the rest. Now if you remember when we said let the paper represent the infinite power, centric power, and we draw the ripples going along in all directions, we fill it up any way we like. Imagine this is the blind lady. It is the totality of all possible functions and forms. And if we superstress any bit of it which exists, we immediately make a specific form. And this specific form then causes the lasting from consciousness and the infinity of other forms which we might have made if we'd have done this. We can make other forms. Every time we focus our consciousness on a specific form, we have stopped that same consciousness from focusing on an infinity of other possibilities. And therefore we can see Egoism means no more than to focus consciousness down to a particular form and then insist that this form is central to our being and we are going to define the world from and through this form and that there shall be no other interpreter of reality other than the view through this window. Now if we remember that the terminology was invented by some very intelligent fellows a long time ago and these fellows embodied priest, king, scientist in one man. Each man was his own priest, his own king, his own scientist. He had to know something, scientifically, empirically. He had to formulate rules how to control the situation out of this. And then he had to go through a ritual performance. As a ritual performer and blesser, and the sanctifier, he was a priest. As an enforcer of his rules, he was a king. And as an empiricist deriving information to experience, he was a scientist. So if we go back and look at ancient Egyptian civilization, Indian, Persian, Chinese, wherever we go, we will always find that the rulers embodied these three functions. Now your head is your king, your heart is your priest, your belly is your scientist. Your belly is your scientist because, of course, the obvious way of testing things empirically is to eat them. This is seen quite easily in a, a baby. As soon as a baby can grasp something, no matter what it is, mentionable or unmentionable, in the mouth it goes. Try it. This is the scientist in the baby. You can tell by the baby's expression that it has these two functions, desire, aversion. It has no pride at that level, really, so it doesn't mind looking horrid. But the thing it's put in its mouth is horrid. And it will beam with delight, unashamedly and without pride, when it attains the power to stand upright for half a second. So, here we see, in every human being, the totality of these six realms exists. In every human being, the generative forces of these six realms, these six tendencies, are egoism, desire and aversion. So that we cannot liberate ourselves from these silly six-fold definings without going to the root cause. People that don't know that gods 
are simply attained human beings cannot get rid of gods in themselves because they don't know that gods are egoic beings of desire and aversion if anybody knew that the gods are subject to desire and aversion and that the gods foolishly and erroneously ignore total reality because they are enjoying the fruits of their previous activities which have conferred knowledge and power upon them they would cease to revere those gods they might look at the titans as envious of those powers and decide they would try the titan role for a bit but if they examine the dependence of the titans upon egoism, desire and aversion they will discern those if they look at men with their pride they will say these creatures are doing nothing except measure, evaluate egoism, desire and aversion if they examine the animals they will observe that they non-reflectively react in desire and aversion that the prey tells those powerless craving beings likewise are driven by egoism, desire and aversion and people in hell have been put there by their own erroneous definitions by egoism, desire and aversion so then you go back to say how can I conquer egoism, desire and aversion in myself the first thing is to see that the infinite ocean of possibilities is non-egoic and as soon as you let go of your pet definition of yourself you automatically become released to do this you have to examine your desire aversion because your desire and aversion is the pattern of your egoism if you like one thing and reject another thing you're automatically wrong so you have to examine the grounds of your desire aversion to release yourself from your egoism now the whole of the message that Christ gave in the statement if you die you can live if you give up your life for my sake you will gain it meaning for the sake of the cosmic logos or Buddha's statement that you can only gain freedom from this wheel by conquering that which led you into it and remember Buddha flogged himself for several years starved himself for several years did all sorts of funny things ascetically and came out no wiser and then he was sitting depressed under a lovely tree called Bo and a woman came up and seeing him looking miserable assumed he was a saint so she quickly ran away to the village and got a bowl of milk she brought the milk and put it before him and he immediately became enlightened because he knew that she had made a mistake that she thought he was a saint that she thought he could bless her and therefore she ran and got the milk so she had given him the milk in order to get a blessing and then he immediately saw that he also must have given something in order to get a blessing so he then analyzed what it was he had given to get where he was and the answer was very simple he had given interest nothing else <coughs> he had taken his being inwards to a particular from the infinite he had identified himself he had become fascinated by a particular image and said this is what I would like to be out of the infinity of possibilities and in committing himself to this he had committed himself to the whole cycle of birth, disease, old age and death and if he didn't become enlightened, rebirth and repeat so he promptly decided he would give it up the word Trishna 
which he translated first, gives you the key to this, because its etymology implies a threefold function. And this threefold function is the one we've just examined, that egoism presupposes the desire for that which will support the ego, and aversion for that which will destroy it. And that either desire or aversion prove the existence of egoism. If you see this threefoldness, you can actually start not grabbing at things for which there is an automatic desire, and not pushing things away that you automatically dislike. But by re-evaluating in the total stimulus situation, to rise above the finite attitude towards it, to the people that can't eat bananas, to the people that can't eat tomatoes, because they have a definition of these things, this definition stops them. There are beings that can actually swallow things that are poisonous to other beings. How they got able to swallow those things that are poisonous to other beings in the first place was by not defining them as undesirable. And therefore we can assimilate total reality providing we do not desire a part of it and have aversion to the other part. So the peculiar thing about this, as in the Nirvana of the Buddhists, is that we are aiming not at a negative state. Possibly Matthew Arnold helped to give that negative interpretation to the Buddhist view in his Light of Asia. We're not aiming at a negative state in which you cannot have anything to do with reality, but a positive state in which you can have something to do with everything of reality by not suffering from desire and aversion for any of its separate elements. We will now retire for refreshment. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.